This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I'm Dan Snyder. I'm the Associate Director for Research of the Shorenstein Asia-Pacific Research Center, at, uh, which is one of the many centers that make up the Freeman Smogley Institute. Uh, and ours focuses on contemporary issues uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. One of the major themes uh, of our research in, in the past year, and an ongoing theme, is to look at the interactions in Northeast Asia between two sort of very strong and sometimes opposing and sometimes overlapping forces, the forces of regionalism, of increasing regional integration, uh, which we see driven largely by market forces in, in the form of economic integration, but also in uh, attempts numerous attempts, sometimes different ones, to create new institutions, regional institutions, uh, th that would bring together uh, the countries of East Asia. The other sort of contending force, uh, which sometimes works against that process of integration, is the force of nationalism. And we see that very strongly these days in Northeast Asia, in the uh, rising nationalism in, in Japan, in Korea, uh, in China, uh, and often producing tensions between those three countries, tensions that sometimes go back to issues of the past, but also to issues of the present, uh, Sino-Japanese rivalry, which has been a theme of, of, of Asian history for at least a century or a century and a half, if not longer than that, uh, is once again very much on the agenda. We have, a, I think, a very distinguished panel of uh, Shorenstein A. Park scholars to talk a little bit about these issues and related issues including the North Korean nuclear crisis. And uh, I'll just introduce them briefly. You have longer uh, uh, introductions, uh, biographies in your, in your literature, but in the order that they're speaking. The first is the, is the director of Shorenstein A. Park, uh, Dr. Gyuok Shin, who's an associate professor of sociology at Stanford University uh, and the founder of the Korean Studies program at Stanford. Uh, he came to us from UCLA. He has uh, written extensively on issues related to Korea. His most recent book is on ethnic nationalism in, in Korea. Uh, and he's written on North Korea, on issues of Korean history and modernization. Uh, and uh, he, his current work uh, includes issues such as looking at the, um, the, the issues of, of, of historical issues and issues of, of, of reconciliation related to uh, the the relations, past relations between Korea and Japan and China. Uh, he'll be followed by Ambassador Michael Armacost, who's the uh, Shorenstein Distinguished Fellow uh, at, at the Shorenstein Center. Ambassador Armacost has a long and distinguished career in government, uh, not, uh, including uh, serving as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs and as Ambassador to Japan and the Philippines. Uh, following his service in government, he served as the President of the Brookings Institution, for I believe not seven years before coming to Stanford. This is his second stint at Stanford. Uh, and his work uh, deals with contemporary issues, including US policy in Northeast Asia, as well as the impact of American domestic politics on the formation of foreign policy. He'll be followed, uh, last but not least, by uh, one of our visiting scholars, uh, the uh, Yang Jiu, who is our Pantech uh, fellow this year, one of our two Pantech fellows this year in, in Korean studies. Uh, he is an official of the uh, Foreign Ministry of the People's Republic of China, uh, and particular uh, relevance to, to what we're talking about today is that he was the head of the uh, Korea desk 
uh, of the foreign ministry. He was a, played a major role in the six-party talks uh, to try and end uh, the North Korean nuclear problem. He's been dealing with uh, issues related to Korea and North Korea going back to 1994 during the time of the first uh, North Korean nuclear crisis. Uh, and uh, he's, his work at, uh, while he's with us at Stanford is looking at the uh, possibilities, the creations of a long-term peace regime for the Korean Peninsula. So each of the gentlemen here will make a, an opening uh, set of remarks, and then I'll follow up a little bit with some questions related to the current situation, and then we'll open the floor to the audience for questions. Dr. Shin. Okay. Well, thanks, Dan. Uh, I'm sure it has been a fairly long day for many of you. And as Dan said, uh, my expertise is more on, on Korean issues. But uh, this time, I'm not really going to talk about uh, Korean issue, but look at Northeast Asia uh, as a whole. And then already actually summarized what I was going to say, but I'll be filling in with a little more uh, information uh, so that we can have some discussion uh, after our brief uh, remarks. Okay, you know, obviously, uh, as Dan said, uh, if you look at uh, Northeast Asia, there are two major, you know, forces are interacting to shape the area. Okay, one is what we can maybe call, you know, regional forces, the other one, uh, national forces. So I'm going to look at like, you know, four different areas to give you like, uh, some overview of what is going on. And then uh, maybe we can have more discussion uh, later. Okay, if you look at uh, uh, economic uh, or business issue, you know, obviously uh, Northeast Asia is probably among the most dynamic uh, area uh, in the world. Obviously, you know, China, Japan, you know, even South Korea, Taiwan, okay, they have you know, huge uh, economic power. And also they are increasing interaction among themselves. You know, for instance, right now, uh, China has become the largest you know, market for Japanese and, and Korean products. So I mean, you know, obviously, in you know, the United States, uh, it's very important you know, for them, but it's an intra-regional economic interaction and, and you, know, you know, integration is occurring, you know, very fast. So I think about, you know, more than one-third of total trade for China, Japan, South Korea, you know, you know more than one-third occurs within them, okay, you know, among China, Japan, uh, and South Korea. So obviously, there's a lot of uh, you know, interaction uh, economically. Also, if you look at uh, social and cultural areas, uh, I think we can find a very similar pattern. You know, now you know, China has become, for instance, a you know, major place uh, for you know, Japanese and, and Korean tourism. About two years ago, I was flying back uh, from Beijing to Seoul, and the airplane was just packed you know, by uh, people. Now there are more and more flights between uh, Beijing and Seoul, and Beijing and Tokyo, uh, and so on. And also, I'm not sure whether you have heard this term, like Korean wave, like now Korean uh, pop cultures are very, become very popular in Japan, 
China. You know, when when you go to like Tokyo, Beijing, in hotel, you can see <laughs> like soap operas of uh, you know South Korea. And last summer, I was uh, uh, I, I I stopped by in a small bookstore in Kyoto. I think I found about almost like ten uh, Japanese magazines are dealing with. Korean pop culture was it's very impressive, actually. So there are more and more cultural interaction uh, among them. I think also among scholars, now there are more and more and more interaction for intellectual uh, discussion as well. So I think socially, culturally, there has been much more interaction among them. Also, you know, politically, uh, you know, they've been, you know, quite active. You know, obviously APEC, uh, you know, has been major Asia-Pacific uh, organization. I think there will be a uh, meeting in Hanoi, what? This, this week. week. Next, yeah. This week, yeah. But besides APEC, mm -hmm. uh, China, Japan, you know, Korea, they've been very active uh, in organizations like, you know, you know, ASEAN plus three, three being China, Japan, South Korea. And also, they held the uh, East Asian Summit in both uh, you know, organization, uh, United States is excluded. So they are arguing more for Asian, like you know, Asian thing, you know, without uh, American presence. So um, economically, socially, culturally, politically, there are more and more interaction among those East Asian people. So sounds very promising, right? very optimistic. But I think that's only part of the story. It's not the whole story, unfortunately, uh, because also there are uh, you know, issues about uh, you know, history, you know, rising power of nationalism. Uh, there are some area that we have to be concerned about. You know, you know that uh, there has been a lot of uh, you know, concerns and protests about uh, former Japanese Prime Minister Koizumi's you know, visit to Yasukuni Shrine. And I think all the leaders in Japan, China, South Korea, okay, they are using the power of nationalism for their own political interest. And if you look at uh, you know, perception of each other, especially look at uh, Korean perception of Japan or Chinese perception of Japan, it's a fairly negative. Like, you know, if you look at survey in, in, in year 2005, about two thirds of Korean and Chinese people have very negative uh, you know, views of Japan. So, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we have to be concerned about, you know, growing power of nationalism in all those countries. And now also we can, uh, as they mentioned, uh, we have to be also concerned about so, you know, double rise of Japan and China. There may be competition uh, for you know, leadership, for hegemony uh, in the area. I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but I'd like to remind you that uh, from late 19th century until like mid 20th century, I can think of like at least like five major wars uh, in the area. You know, from from 1894 to five, you know, Sino-Japanese War. So that's a major conflict between old power, which is China, and new power, uh, which is Japan. Ten years later, a war between Russia and Japan in a major Eastern power versus major uh, Western power. 
And then 1937, in a war between China and Japan again. And then four years later, Pacific War, right? And then from 1950 to 53, the Korean War. So maybe for the last 50 years, it was relatively peaceful, but uh, we shouldn't forget that in modern history, you know, for those 50 years, there's like five major wars uh, in the area. So I think a major challenge is to how we can promote, you know, more positive regional forces and how we can contain uh, more destructive power, potentially, you know, destructive power of nationalism uh, in those areas. So I think that will be a major uh, challenge and issue that is facing us uh, in the coming years. So I'll just stop here. Let me uh, just make four observations about the uh, institutionalization of regional cooperation in Asia. Uh, first comment would be that uh, compared to a decade ago, the center of gravity for regional cooperation has shifted from trans-Pacific organizations, APEC being the, the first among them, to pan-Asian organizations, ASEAN plus three being the most important. In APEC, the U.S., Australia, Japan tended to provide the lead, and we were key members. And we urged open regionalism. We promoted uh, voluntary tariff reduction schemes. We uh, initiated annual summit meetings among the leaders. In 1997, when the financial contagion struck the region, however, we did not bother to convene APEC to undertake a joint diagnosis of the problem, let alone a coordinated strategy for coping with it, and thereafter our interests seemed to wane. I think partly it was because the Clinton administration was mainly interested in globalization rather than regionalization. In any event, uh, pan-Asian institutions in which, as uh, Guy Walker said, we are not a participant, have become the driving force between, uh, be behind efforts to institutionalize regional cooperation today. The second uh, point I would make is that if you compared uh, the strength and vitality of Asian institutions against the gold, the gold standard of uh, the European community, then I think the Asian institutions look pretty primitive. This is a vast region. It's a heterogeneous region. Uh, ASEAN plus three being the most robust institution has emphasized breadth. There are a lot of members rather than depth. There are not a lot of practical projects that produce tangible benefits for people and thereby create constituencies asking for more cooperation. Uh, there is the problem of nascent rivalry between the two biggest countries, Japan and uh, China. There is the uncertainty about uh, India's role in the region. There is the absence of official relations between Taiwan and its neighbors. There is the uh, lacuna in, in the region of any institutions addressing security problems in Northeast Asia, which is the place where the legacy of the Cold War is most apparent in a divided Korea and an unresolved Taiwan problem. So here you've got a vast heterogeneous region with the relatively weak institution by comparison with uh, what we've seen evolve in the last 50 years in, on the continent of Europe. Uh, all that said, I would uh, argue that there is more to Asian regionalism than meets the eye. 
we tend to poo-poo it and disregard it and uh, adopt a rather passive and diffident attitude toward it. But there are at least five uh, forces that seem to be driving uh, Asians to experiment with these institutions uh, designed to integrate the region. One is the model of the EU and NAFTA, what's good for the goose, good for the gander. Uh, it's a means of uh, caucusing to promote Asian interests in global institution. Second, there are the realities of interregional trade, which are growing much more rapidly than trans-Pacific trade, and naturally that creates an interest in having institution that can both promote the further expansion of those economic flows and also provide a means of adjudicating the conflicts which occur with increasing frequency among the countries in the area. Thirdly, there's the fact of China's rise. It's quite natural that China, acquiring power at the rapid rate it is, would want to express its leadership through the creation of regional institutions. And by the same token, if you're in ASEAN or you're a neighbor of China, there is probably a practical interest in domesticating China's growing power by embedding it in institutions which discipline their conduct to certain uh, rules. And of course, there is the unspoken desire on the part of many Asians to check the dominance of the United States. These are all tangible, practical interests which I think are served by efforts to further experiment with the practical means of cooperating. So I think there's more than we tend to acknowledge behind this movement uh, toward Pan-Asian institution. Is it a threat to the United States? Do we have to be in the meetings uh, whenever other nations gather? I don't believe so. We have meetings with our hemispheric friends to which we don't invite Asians. It's quite natural that they would wish to have their own club. On the other hand, we do have substantial interests in Asia. We're a major contributor to the balance of power. We're a major proponent of open trade. We're the dominant player when it comes to non-proliferation and a host of other transnational issues. So we have an interest in what develops there and probably some interest in being a part of, of some of these institutions. We're not without options. One option would be to try and revitalize APEC. That seems to me the most logical. Uh, second option would be to just to watch carefully to see that Asian institutions which develop are consistent with global regimes in which we continue to play a large role, IMF, World Bank, so forth. A third uh, role I suppose we could play is the Machiavellian game of uh, exploiting differences among Asians in order to arrest the development of regional institutions of which we're not a member. I don't particularly care for that game, but it's a logical option. Then we could uh, concentrate mainly on, on the security institutions, embryonic security institutions in Northeast Asia, which is where the big problems lie. Southeast Asia has ASEAN, which is pretty well developed. Northeast Asia has nothing except the six power talks to deal with the Korean nuclear problem. It is difficult for me to imagine that uh, that will provide a useful nucleus of a larger institution if it doesn't make any headway on the problem for which it was created. And unfortunately, the prognosis at the moment is not very promising. Whether the relative diffidence or indifference of the U.S. toward Asian regionalism is a result of our distraction in the Middle East, uh, whether it's a result of uh, our conviction that not much is likely to come of this, or the calculation that if something of importance takes shape, we'll have plenty of time to adapt to it. I don't know. It's not, uh, I'm not here to argue the merits. 
of our relative passivity. But I tend to think there is more there, as I said, than meets the eye. So I hope personally that uh, Washington will pay a little more attention to this and will at least try and transform APEC back into the promising institution it appeared to be in the early 90s. Stop there. I'd like to uh, make uh, three points of observations regarding to uh, the hot issues in this region, Northeast Asia. Firstly, the North Korean nuclear issue, uh, that is maybe the hottest one in this region now. Uh, it's too complicated to be summed up by a few sentences, but a very simple and a critical question to all of the world is, after the nuclear test is, will North Korea become another India or Pakistan, or will be denuclearized by the Sikh Party talks? And uh, my answer to this question is, yes, we will be able to pull North Korea back, denuclearize North Korea. Not because US and China will never allow North Korea to realize their nuclear ambitions. Yes, they do have the nuclear ambitions. Frankly speaking, I don't believe North Korea's uh, 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 argumentation say because of U.S. nuclear threats, we have to have nuclear deterrence. Uh, yes, it's part of the reasons. But if you look at the history, their ambition can trace back to several decades ago. And uh, their great leader came to our great leader to request the strategic help and our great leader denied that great leader's request <laughs> anyway. So at that time, they, they, they didn't have, anyway, they didn't have the, the argumentation, say, because of U.S. nuclear deterrence. You know, they have something else, some, strateg uh, uh, some strategic uh, items else. Uh, but now, North Korea it is indeed under the, uh, at least, the military threats. So... Uh, if you look at uh, their poor military um, equipments of the military forces, I think the nuclear option is the shortcut to balance the uh, uh, security situation to guarantee their security. Yes, I, I fully understand that. But that is not all of their strategic purpose. And uh, last year when I... Uh, at that time, I worked in my office in the foreign ministry. And my boss asked me to plan and compose the draft of the joint statement that had been passed uh, on the September 19th of 2005. When I began to plan and compose the draft, what, what I had in mind actually were three big items. One, two stations. I call it two stations. In Chinese, we call it Lianghua. In English, it's a denuclearization and a normalization. That means we cannot simply or singly address or solve the nuclear issue without touching anything else. 
basically, ideally, we need to realize the denuclearization of the whole peninsula and also normalization of North Korean's relationship with the international community, primarily with the United States. So it seems to me that the two nations uh, is a sort of coin, you know, one coin with two sides. If you pick up this side, nobody will say, oh, th this is a coin, right? So we cannot realize denuclearization without realizing the normalization between North Korea and outside world. So that's why I insisted on this, and then we successfully introduced the two nations in the documents and the past and endorsed by the Six Nations. And the second item is, I intentionally reintroduced the 92 documents, that is the joint declaration of the uh, denuclearization of the peninsula signed by the two Koreas in the early 92. And that idea was too bold to be achieved, it seemed to me at that time, because North Korea has threw it away for quite a few years. And that document, technically speaking, is far more stronger than the documents in 94 signed by US and the DPRK. And uh, we partially uh, successfully introduced this item into the documents. I say partially success because uh, some reservations from my uh, our American friends. It's a sad story. I have no time to reveal that. But anyway, it's a uh, we we basically success success. We are basically successful in pulling North Korea back to the ninety two documents. I think that should be the base or standard for. Denuclearization. Actually, now we have uh, some ambiguities among nations or among parties. Say, what does it mean by denuclearization? Does it mean non nuclear item at all in North Korea? No matter it's a civilian uses or military uses, not at all. Or no nuclear facilities or items relating to military. But as a sovereign country, North Korea, like South Korea, entitled the right to peaceful uses. I think to solve this ambiguity or disputes, the right answer is 92 documents. So anyway, at least now, we achieved one step that pulled North Korea back to the 92 documents. And even after their nuclear test, they didn't, they haven't uh, walked away from that. They reaffirmed their position to Chinese that they remain honoring these documents and they remain honoring the joint statements. And the third item is, in my mind, when I compose the joint, joint statement is the regional mechanism for security cooperation among the six nations 
that contains many meanings, but one of the meanings to North Korea, to U.S., is U.S. won't wipe out North Korea regime because in the future there will be a six-way cooperation mechanism, including North Korea. To North Korea is also a sort of security guarantee that if you want to be a uh, responsible member in this region, welcome, and uh, we have a seat for you for the regional cooperation, uh, regional security cooperation. So fortunately, and uh, we successfully keep the three items in the final documents. And we, the news report said uh, Chinese side failed to push for the documents till we submitted the, the fifth uh, edition of the draft. But uh, technically, I cannot remember how many editions I, I, I have made, but basically, even let's say five, uh, the fifth. Uh, fortunately, in the fifth edition, we keep we we made many changes, but the three keep unchanged. Fortunately, so the three items I believe can be the base to pull North Korea back to the non-nuclear uh, status, and uh, the current condition is North Korea still keep the joint statement, including the three items. And uh, the international community's efforts should start this point to work on North Korea, to do diplomacy to solve these complicated issues. Uh, that's why I said it's possible, it's possible to pull North Korea back, and it's possible to prevent North Korea to be uh, from being another Indian or Pakistani, uh, Pakistani case. And the second point is uh, the question for a, sec a second point is the China rising, uh, China's rising. The question for how to deal with a rising China has become hotter and hotter issues to many strategists, especially in the United States. Uh, yes, China in the course of rising, but I want to point out is, firstly, the rising China or rise of China is not an isolated phenomenon. Actually, it's a part of a trend, it's a, it's a part of the trends of rising Asia. That can track back to the 60s, started from Japan rising. And the rising Asia is continuing. And uh, so when we observe or talk about China's rising, we should put this phenomenon in a bigger background. And secondly, how to deal with China? It's a strategic question, but it's not the whole of the strategic question. In a strategic dynamics, how to, how to deal with China, this question of how to deal with China is only part of the dynamics. The other part of dynamics is 
how China will face their external situation, or how the other powers treat with China. Yesterday, uh, oh, I should say, uh, which direction China will go also depends on the external situation. If, for example, uh, some U.S. big thinkers said, if you treat China as an enemy today, and gradually they will become your enemy. I agree with that. Yesterday, uh, U.S. Congress, U.S. China Economic Security Review Commission issue a report, annual report, saying China helped North Korea to develop their nuclear weapons. And it's really ridiculous. It's really another scandal like uh, Saddam Hussein has a mass destruction weapon so that we should invade, we should attack. So unfortunately, this report, uh, I don't think this report, this conclusion can be a uh, uh, US government's policy. If that is the policy, that would be disaster, not only on China, but also of the United States. And uh, everyone knows China strongly, clearly opposed North Korea's nuclearization. That policy can be back to the Cold War era. And I believe the experts on this, in this position know that, but they intentionally say the different thing. In other words, they are lying. Why they are lying? They want to create an enemy to the United States if the efforts become a policy of the United States. I believe China will certainly become the enemy of the United States. That would be a disaster, not only for Chinese people, but also for American people. So the both sides as a responsible stakeholder or responsible countries in the world should prevent any intentionally, uh, any intentional uh, purposes, uh, uh, any intentional uh, efforts that try to drive the relation towards the hostile relation. That's not good for American interests. And uh, thirdly, I want to, uh, the point is Asia in transition, transitional period. Now, I should say regionalism in Asia, Northeast Asia, nationalism in North Asia. Yes, both of the isms are rising. Uh, all the region, why? Because all the regions, the region as a whole, has entered in a historical, very unique historical transitional period at a both national level, a level and a regional level. Just look at the countries in this region. China uh, is in transition, no question about that. No matter you anti-China or pro-China, everyone agree that China is in uh, transition. And Japan, also in a great transition, dramatic transition, though, and uh, cre create so many uncertainties, both uh, foreign or domestic policies, and also South Korea, uh, politically, economically, and even North Korea, also in transition. 
So that is the national level. And the regional level, in this region, there hasn't been a multilateral security cooperation mechanism. There hasn't been a multilateral economic cooperation mechanism. But that could be. But what, what kind of mechanism should be or like to be, no one knows. Why there's no uh, cooperation mechanism in security? Simple answer, because no common enemy. Every country has their specific enemy or potential enemy, but no common enemy. So no strategic needs or momentum to organize or form a strategic allies, uh, a, a, a coalition or something like that, anyway. So economically, the similar situation. Different, no, uh, I cannot say no common enemy, but you know, different focuses. Japanese has their own economic focus, and Chinese does, and North Korea, uh, South Korean does, even North Korea also does. So no common focal point to form a cooperation. But on the other hand, the regionalism develops so fast that every nation in this country feel more and more, it's more and more urgent to deepen the cooperations. For example, now the, uh, there have been a trilateral summit mechanism among uh, uh, China, uh, South Korea, and Japan, and so on. And, uh, but all the situation uh, is quite uh, complicated, and uh, no one, uh, the, the, the single simple character is uncertainty. That is the, uh, the current situation in Northeast Asia, both politically and economically. And how to reduce the uncertainty and uh, increase the uh, certainty of the region towards the right direction, I think we have many things to do. But uh, one of the basic things we, we need to do is try every effort to reduce mutual mistrusts and the mutual suspicions. In this region, we are facing many countless problems ranging from security and the economy. But the basic uh, problem is mutual mistrust or mutual suspicions. For example, Japanese uh, uh, are fear of China's uh, rising and the Chinese are fear of chi Japanese uh, remilitarization. And uh, even between South Korea and China, uh, the two countries have a good, good relationship. And also South Korea suspicious of China's intention to dominate North Korea. And, uh, and also there are some suspicions among Chinese uh, about uh, South Korea. So such uh, mutual suspicions, not mentioned to the North and the South, you know, uh, such uh, suspicions impede or uh, the uh, necessary uh, cooperation. Let me stop here. Sorry. Uh, I think this is a pretty rich uh, array of issues that have been raised. But before I open it to the floor, and I will do that, let me just give the opportunity to either Ambassador Armacost or Dr. Shin if they want to join into this, this conversation a little bit. Uh, I would uh, say I agree fully with uh, Young Jiu about uh, 
China policy, but I wouldn't highlight the role of a commission that's reporting to Congress. Uh, the administration still runs foreign policy, and I think uh, basically they've been wise in putting the leadership uh, of our relationship with China in the hands of Bob Zelik first and Hank Paulson second. So I think actually the, the commitment to engagement is pretty strong. I hope uh, my colleague is right about the possibility of denuclearizing North Korea, but I would say, hey, it's a lot harder to roll back a program than it is to stop it short of the mark. So it's gotten a lot harder in recent weeks. Uh, second, I don't think we have distinguished ourselves in the negotiation by emphasizing a multilateral negotiation but refusing to allow our negotiator to talk directly with the North. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, diplomacy is nothing more nor less than establishing the basis of agreement or disagreement as the case may be, and you can't do that without talking to people. So it seems to me we've just forgotten one of the fundamentals of diplomacy and deprived ourselves of the flexibility to establish what their motives are and whether there's a possibility of accommodating them. Uh, actually, I, I regret we didn't normalize swiftly with North Korea in the 1990s. It would have been helpful just from an intelligence standpoint to have people up there looking around. Uh, but beyond that, we've got this curious notion that if you talk to people who engage in misconduct from time to time, you're legitimizing them or you're ex expressing your moral approbation. There's nothing of the sort. This is just a means of doing business. We ought to, we ought to grow up. The, the other point to me that's important is I don't think it's difficult for the United States to offer security assurances to North Korea. I mean, we keep saying that we, we got all options on the table. We don't have a serious military option against North Korea, and we haven't uh, for decades since the North Koreans have had the capacity to take out Seoul with their artillery. They don't need nuclear weapons to have a deterrent. They have a perfectly efficacious conventional deterrent. But it seems to me that uh, it uh, is necessary for us to have confidence in any denuclearization agreement to have inspection arrangements that we, we have confidence in. Uh, North Korea has 12,000 caves, and they've got a culture uh, that's addicted to secrecy and deception, so it's hard for me to get my head around the kind of assurances we would have that a monitoring regime would work. And by the same token, it's hard for me to believe that the North Koreans would take our rhetorical assurances uh, to heart. I mean, they, they deeply distrust us, as you say. <laughs> So how are they going to be dissuaded from their distress by something we write or send or say? So I, th I think this is an extremely difficult problem that's got a lot, gotten a lot tougher in the last couple of months. And uh, while I think it's worth reconvening in those talks, unfortunately the history of the Six Power Talks has been that the North Koreans are very good at spotting the seams between their interlocutors exploiting those differences to stall for time and using the time to do what? To operate the reactor, to augment their uranium enrichment capacity, and to reprocess plutonium. And meanwhile, we have not been able to effectively translate a shared aim in a non-nuclear North Korea into a coordinated effort to accomplish that. Uh, well, maybe, maybe after the tests we'll get serious, but I'm, I'm afraid I'm from Missouri on this. <laughs> Should we open to the floor? Sure. Questions?
Sig Hecker should speak to this. He was in North Korea last week. I'd first like to make a comment. Since I saw that uh, that Yang Chiyu was obviously quite disturbed with the uh, U.S. Uh, Congress report, is I certainly hope that we don't go down the same path that we did with the Cox report. Th there's a lot of stuff that comes out of Congress that eventually is just ignored. Right. Is wrong. So I would just suggest we don't get too worked up about this. But one piece of good news is that I was in Washington Tuesday and Wednesday. I was asked by a very influential senator. <coughs> Uh, to come by and talk to him about North Korea. Uh, and, uh, and in the discussion, it was quite clear uh, that he was on a very different page uh, than, let's say, any of us are here. And so there, there are three things I dispelled uh, that, that he believed. One is the one you just mentioned from the report, when he said that China helped North Korea with the nuclear weapons program. I just told him there's absolutely no sign of that whatsoever. You know, from my discussions with the Chinese nuclear weapons people, with the Russians, with the North Koreans themselves, the Chinese had nothing to do with this. In fact, they're quite envious in a way. They said, well, they let you in up there, but they don't let us in, nor can we go. Uh, so that, that was one thing. The, the second one uh, was that the North Korea problem could be solved if the Chinese would just squeeze them more. Uh, and so I, I also told them, look, that's really not, uh, not going to be the answer. And the third was that, that China, that North Korea is going to explode anyway. You know, the whole place is just falling apart. And, and I will, tomorrow I'll have a chance to talk at APARC, uh, and we can share some of the photos we saw from North Korea. You know, it's not about to, to go under. Uh, so at any rate, uh, I think if that's what the report said, I haven't seen it. Uh, it certainly uh, doesn't match with a lot of us, uh, uh, what we know in the United States, and I think that will eventually be sorted out. The question that I had was the same one uh, that Michael just addressed, and this is what we found in, in North Korea a couple of weeks ago is just over and over they said, yes, the 919 agreement, as they call it now, uh, you know, we still believe in the 919 agreement, we believe in denuclearization, uh, however, uh, the U.S. has to do the normalization and the security guarantees. And I have the same problem. What, what do we do? What do we give them that they're gonna believe? You know, there's so much mistrust between the two. So I, I think I know how to do the denuclearization step, but I don't know how to do the other step. So I guess, you know, with you experts knowing those countries, what could actually be done with North Korea that could get us down a path that could lead to denuclearization? Well, I think, you know, for United States, in my view, you know, USA has to be more serious about this. I mean, you know, you know, despite all those talks, I'm not sure whether US really, really wanted to talk to North Korea seriously. I mean, because, I mean, you know, it has been many, many years. And, you know, so, you know, once again, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, six-party talk, uh, you know, can be a good format. But personally, I don't really expect, you know, anything to happen, you know, within next, you know, two years. You know, my sense, I don't know what what your sense from North Korea, but, you know, North Korea may just wait wait out, you know, Bush administration. And you know, Bush administration is now in lame duck, and I don't know, there may be some pressure from Congress, you know. 
for some democrats, but still, uh, I'm not sure how much uh, you know power now they have. Uh, so, you know, obviously uh, the prospect uh, for six-party talks, in my view, is not that promising. So, you know, we can still maintain the format, but I think, you know, U.S. also should talk to North Korea more directly. I mean, I've been arguing for years that uh, we should uh, send someone like uh, Bill Perry, you know, during Clinton administration. So sending high-profile uh, person who, you know, Mr. Bush uh, really trusts, and then give him or her power to seriously negotiate uh, with North Korea. And, you know, North Korea is an authoritarian country. You know, it can be good and bad, actually, because, uh, you know, they don't have to worry about public opinion, <laughs> right? So if you can talk to Kim Jong-il and convince him, you can make a deal, actually. So unlike uh, here or South Korea, you have to consider public opinion. So, so that's why I think uh, if he send uh, someone high profile in the administration or in a formal official, I mean, we've been people talking about like James Baker or someone, uh, then talk to North Korea very seriously. And I think North Korea might uh, come forward uh, with some you know, good, uh, you know, something we can actually you know, make a deal actually. So I think at this point, I don't know, this may be the best scenario, but that seems to be the most logical thing to do. Otherwise, I don't see you know, any solution in the near future. I, th I think uh, it's true that they don't have to worry about public opinion, but my impression, uh, you would know better than I, is that if the regime has changed over the last five years, it has diminished the power of the party and upgraded the power of the military. Uh -huh. And uh, the policy of the government is very clear. Military first. They get more than 30% of the resources. Uh, presumably the military pressed for these tests in order to have a workable device. If you had a change of regime, which many in the administration seem to want, it seemed inconceivable to me that anybody would succeed Kim Jong-il other than the military person. And assuming the military are the strongest lobbyists for a nuclear device, how that would help our denuclearization effort is, is very obscure. I think uh, the, I, I agree with uh, Giwok about the need for a high-level emissary uh, to, to perform basically the tasks that Bill Perry performed. It tends to be forgotten that the Clinton administration was in total disarray on this issue in the late 90s. So the first thing Bill had to do was to organize a policy within the administration and to sell it to the Congress and to consult with the Allies so you could present Pyongyang with a view that reflected support at home and among Allied countries. The same thing exists today. We don't have serious, I don't believe, we have really serious consultation either with the South Korean government or the Chinese government. I regret that. We wag our finger and we go through our litany of complaints. I don't think it's a serious strategic discussion. We certainly are in disarray at home. And I believe the problem has been that the administration never quite decided whether it was serious about a negotiated outcome or whether it was putting its marbles on regime change. The latter is not stupid. It's hard to think of governments that have given up nuclear weapons without a regime change. South Africa gave them up on the threshold of regime change. Uh, Argentina and Brazil 
gave up their quest as a result of democratization efforts that occurred in Latin America a decade or two ago. On the other hand, you can't have a negotiation while seeking to undermine your negotiating partner. And any deal that emerges has to involve concessions on our part, on security and on economics. And those will inevitably, in the short term, fortify the survivability of the regime. So I think our policy, I regret to say, has lacked coherence because we have never clearly chosen between the options. Now, for medium-sized powers or small countries, it's quite natural to try and keep all your options open. Great power can't do that. If you're going to provide a lead, you've got to make a decision. And you've got to have a clear policy. And I think we have, we've had this fundamental difference between people in the administration, which has not been resolved or has been resolved so quietly that nobody quite is clear <laughs> what the decision was. And I believe the time has come to uh, have a clearer signal to others and to go one way or the other. Uh, you could make a case either way, but we, I don't think you can make a case for straddling two contradictory options, and that, I fear, is what, what we've done. Other questions? Yes. Come back to the regional economic situation. Did most of the trade barriers come down between the various countries? I believe there my view is that uh, the barriers are coming down and uh, China has taken a strong lead in promoting regional uh, free trade agreements and has paid through concessions that are implemented up front. That's a good thing. Uh, there is a patchwork quilt that's emerging of bilateral free trade deal. Unfortunately, these are all inevitably trade distorting. So I don't see how it serves our purpose to allow multilateral talks, which assure that the concessions are shared by everybody through the most favored nation principle, to become moribund. And meanwhile, all these bilateral agreements take place, which inevitably have discriminatory features. Now, we can't blame Asians for this, because we started it. And we started it in part because we were not confident that the multilateral trade deals would flourish. So we said, well, we've got another arrow in our quiver, that is bilateral deal. But unfortunately, everybody else has taken that uh, option up. And these bilateral deals are proliferating very rapidly. So there, there is quite a substantial bit of trade liberalization. But it's taking place on a, on a less rational basis than would be the case if we did this through the WTO on a global basis. And that comment is true even within the region? Oh yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of bilateral deals in Asia. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, free trade, you know, agreement between China and South Korea, between Japan and South Korea. So, I mean, still there are some barriers, but maybe compared to 10 years ago, I think much less now. And like in case of Korea, they even opened up their what they call cultural industry so like uh, five, six years ago, may, may, late, late 90s, I guess. Uh, so now they're able to import Japanese movies and films, which wasn't possible 10 years ago. So. I, I think in, in a way, the most significant thing that's uh, taking place has been the opening on private investment. Because once you can invest in a country, 40% of world trade is intra-firm trade. And so when China has attracted over $500 billion of foreign direct investment since 1990, that means there are a huge number of 
of foreign firms that are established, in many ways are dominating the export trade. Well, that means that we can export a lot because we're exporting to our own companies. So that, that barrier has, uh, has dropped a great deal. And uh, Japan, which was, in a, in a way, Japan and Korea were most resistant. They self-consciously sought to develop through domestic savings rather than allowing equity investment from abroad. And now I think both recognize the value of opening up uh, to foreign direct investment and regard that as a signal of their success rather than something to be avoided like the plague. So I think the, 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 pri the opening of private investment has probably done more to ease former restrictions on trade than any other single thing I could think of. Well, you know, in a, as far as I remember, I mean, maybe economists may you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's a little difference between trade and investment, because I think still the major source of uh, foreign investment uh, in those areas coming from the United States. So unlike trade, trade is more intra-regional, but still in terms of foreign investment, so that's still a major source coming from Japan. 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 Investing more, yeah. than, more than the United US States. Mm. Yeah. And the lar I think the largest component of investment in China has come from the, I, the Chinese diaspora in Asia, mm -hmm. you know, right. Taiwan, but Singapore. But recently, but recently, the rise of <coughs> Japanese investment into China is big, yeah. Yeah, but how, about, how, about, how about Japan and South Korea? You mean from? No, from foreign to, investment to, to, in yeah, foreign investment to Japan and South Korea. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, that's rising, in, 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 in especially in commercial and retail yeah. areas. Um, but, I mean, the flow is clearly, you know, towards the big sink mm -hmm. in China where all the manufacturing right, is. Right. Yeah. Last question before we close out. Yes. More like to the Dr. Shin. Uh, the uh, reunification between North and South, what is the prospect, and also how the neighboring country, do they like to see that, that happen or not? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, US, I mean, who knows? I mean, if I knew the answer, then I may be working for the Korean government. Then. <laughs> working here. But, you know, you know let, let me give you some, you know, uh, sentiments among South Korean people these days. I mean, that may be one way of answering your question. Uh, you know, in 1990, when uh, Germany was unified, there's a lot of enthusiasm among Korean people. Okay, now it's our turn. You know, after Germany, now it's time for us to reunify. But now they've seen what happened uh, in Germany, right? And then even West Germany has been struggling to finance uh, unification process. So I think Koreans realize that. So I think uh, that's why they don't want to push for unification. They wanted to make more gradual change so that they can uh, take care of the process. So that's one thing. And the other one, uh, lately, I mean, maybe you may disagree, but I'm just uh, telling you know, some Korean sentiments because some people are now even saying that uh, it is not uh, you know, meaningful to, to compare Korea with Germany because uh, uh, when, German, yeah, when uh, Soviet Union you know, you know, collapsed, right, and then Eastern Germany collapsed, then they were just taken by West Germany. Now, what if uh, North Korea collapsed today? Okay, it will become part of Korea or some Chinese, uh, you know, whatever they can move to North Korea or whatever. So I think now 
There are certain discussion among Korean people. What's going to happen if North Korea collapse? You know, all of a sudden. So whether uh, North Korea will come back to South Korea, or it, it will be taken by somebody else. So I think there's some discussion about those. So I think so now Korean thinking about unification has become much more complicated. It's not simply okay now you're a part of our nation. If you collapse, then you'll become you'll come back to us. I think much more complex than that. So maybe that's one way of answering your question. Would you like to have a last word? Yeah. Uh, uh, many of Chinese, including me, think the best way for the peaceful, uh, first of all, China oppose neither North nor South uh, conquer the other part by military means, because that will cause another disaster, not only for Korean people, but for, for Chinese. And the Chinese only support one way to reunification, that is a peaceful one. And the, be the best and the most ideal way is let North Korea uh, go in gradual evolution. That's the practical way. Some, some South Korean people say uh, we can uh, combine or digest. And I argue that you have no capability of West Germany and uh, North Korea is poorer than East Germany. So how you can digest? And uh, so the real practical way is let North Korea in the course of a pe uh, peaceful and a gradual evolution. And then the condition can be accumulated towards the full condition. Thank you. Well, I hope you will all join me in thanking our panel for a really interesting discussion. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.